0: Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, and Michelle, thank you for doing such an excellent job on a very lengthy reading. Uh, As we turn our attention to the scriptures today, one thing that stands out to me is the kindness of God in arranging the passage that we're going to be looking at today from Acts chapters 25 and 26 in light of um, all that we've been through um, as citizens for the last 12, 13 months, and and in particular the last few weeks here, uh, that God, I believe, as we open His Word today, is going to uh, encourage us. He's going to lift our eyes to see the glory of Christ above uh, human institutions and human systems of power and authority. And I believe as He does that, He's not only going to encourage our hearts and give us confidence and hope as we go forward into the next season of our Uh, lives into the next season of this nation's life, Uh, but I believe he's also going to reinvigorate our vision for the work that he's prepared for each one of us to do as he continues to redeem this community, this culture, as he continues to redeem us, redeem our families, redeem our workplaces and our schools. So let's go to the Lord now and um, ask in particular that He would bless us as we uh, open His Word together. Lord Jesus, we do thank You for gathering us here this morning. We thank You that You love us, that Your intention now is to nurture us as our Good Shepherd. And we pray, Lord, for, for each one of us that You would reorient us, that You would um, refresh our love for You, and our attachment to You, our trust in You. Lord, if there are anyone any, any here who have not yet put their trust in You, Lord, I pray that You would draw all of us closer to You, Jesus. That You would restore all of our souls as we gather before You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Before we turn to the passage in Acts chapter 25, uh, if you have a Bible, and you can turn to the Gospel reading that we heard today, which came from Matthew chapter 8, well, it's the beginning of Matthew chapter 9. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. Um, but what's interesting about this passage is that it comes as kind of a crescendo to a long um, list or a long series of, of vignettes that Matthew produces for us that demonstrate really one cohesive theme. And this one again comes as the, as the crescendo of those. So, uh, it starts with a statement that some of the folks that heard the Sermon on the Mount say, or the, those who heard the Sermon on the Mount, some of them said, uh, this man teaches with authority, not like our scribes. There's that word, authority. And then that sets in motion this. Um, rapid sequence of narratives that all demonstrate Jesus' authority over everything. He's not just a good communicator. He's not just a compelling preacher. Um, He's not just wise and, and whatever. He actually is Yahweh. He actually is the Creator God who governs everything in real time entered into His creation to demonstrate that He has absolute authority over everything. So it starts right after the Sermon on the Mount with this leper that comes running up to Jesus. And this guy should not be there, right? He's in a crowd of people. The lepers should not have been amongst the other people. He doesn't only do that, but he runs up and and he, he touches Jesus. And this problem, this authority, presents itself to Jesus. The authority of leprosy. If you think about it, authority is really just the ability to control something right and if you have leprosy then the leprosy has a significant amount of control over your life how long your life is going to be the quality of your life um, the constraints that are put upon your freedoms because you're contagious and so this authority that's uh, no one can really untie this knot of leprosy. It, it can't be cured. It presents itself to Jesus in this man who, who runs up and asks Jesus, who He says, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus, with a word, uh, heals this man in, in front of all these people that have just marveled at one kind of authority. And the man is clean. So again, here we see Jesus as Yahweh in the midst of His creation, governing redeeming bringing people back to God and it doesn't stop there so that's the beginning and then right from there there's a centurion that comes and he has a servant who's lying sick in bed and this the 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 centurion says if you if you just say a word my servant will be healed and that happens Jesus heals this man's servant in that very moment from afar and then from there, they go to Peter's house. And Peter's mom is lying in bed with a fever. And, and, and Jesus comes and he, he heals Peter's mother. But then that evening, there's a whole parade of sick people with all kinds of maladies that, that are authorities, right? The authority of demon oppression. The authority of cancer. The authority of all kinds of sicknesses and maladies. And Jesus demonstrates once again that He has authority over all of these things. And then from there they get into a boat and and they're on their way across the lake and a a great storm rises up such that these seasoned uh, men of the sea, they say, don't you care that we're perishing? I mean, this isn't just a squall that they're going to get through. It's not just, oh darn, our sandwich is washed overboard. Um, Don't you care, Jesus, about our lunch? They think that they're going to die. They know that they're going to the bottom. And Jesus rises up, and with a word, He he speaks calm over this great storm. And the word that's used is that there was a great calm. Like, not a breath of wind on the water. And you may have heard that passage taught, or you may have read it and thought, well, the, the meaning of this passage or the primary point is that Jesus can calm all the storms in my life. And that, that certainly is true. The point here is, is, descri- or is revealed by the disciples themselves who say, Who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey Him? What authority is this? Who is in this boat with us that even the wind and the waves obey Him? they 're terrified in a good way, and then it goes from there across the the water to the to the men who are in the, the tombs and they 're sick they 're demon possessed Jesus with a word casts out those those demons and then the crescendo in chapter nine, which we heard read just moments ago where jesus uh, is in a house teaching, and a paralytic is lowered down through the roof, and with a word, with a word, Jesus says, "Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven." So based on all that we've just seen, what just happened? What did Yahweh just do? What transaction was just enacted in the courts of heaven? This man's sins just got forgiven. Because Jesus saw His faith. But some were mumbling, because who has authority to forgive sins but God alone? And and Jesus understood what they were mumbling. And He said, so that you will know that I just did that thing, I'll do this thing that you can see. That's actually maybe harder to to do. Because you, you can't just fake it. So just so that you know that I did that thing, and He turned to the man and said... Rise and walk." All that is to say that as we turn to Acts chapter 25, we're going to see this theme that runs throughout all of Scripture from Genesis 3 really, of, of this clash of authority. This, this tug of war. This, this drama. This unfolding tension between the serpent and, and the seed of the woman. And, and we've, we've seen some of that unfold there in Matthew. And we're going to see it here And and I wanted to refer to those passages in Matthew because this long passage in Acts really follows the same formula. It just goes into far greater detail. But but what we're going to see, just as we've seen with leprosy and the centurion sick servant and all these sick people in in Peter's house and the storm and the the demon-possessed men in the tombs and then this paralytic who has sins and paralysis you see this problem presented. You see this would-be authority presented. Or this real authority. This real, visible authority. Right? But then you see Yahweh. You see Jesus uh, kind of repelling into the midst of it. And demonstrating that He has complete authority over all of it. And He's not breaking a sweat, folks, is He? I mean, He's not freaking out. His... his, his his forehead never kind of wrinkles up. He's like, man, yeah, paralysis. Darn it. Let me see <laughs> if there's something in here about paralysis. I mean, without without ever uh, having his kind of blood pressure go up, he's just speaking. He's just speaking and reigning and redeeming and reconciling and rescuing, showing mercy. Showing what God's authority looks like. Showing that God's authority isn't an abstraction, but that God's authority is here. And it's available. And all we have to do is turn to Him in faith. And ask for mercy. And He'll give us mercy. That's a good word for us this morning. It's a good word for us as we navigate through these times that we're in. So, we see as we turn to this passage that... that Luke is going to follow this same pattern. He's going to set up this worldly visible system of authority such that we shudder. We shudder. We think the the cards are stacked against Paul. This is a very impressive array of worldly authority. But then another authority repels into the midst of it. And we get to see the glory of Christ, and what compels Paul, and what compels us. Let's read just brief portions of this together, just to to be able to get a flavor for what Luke is doing. So let's look at the beginning of this text, and we'll just go up one verse to chapter 24, verse 27, and read that paragraph that ends in verse 6 of chapter 25. As you read this, listen for uh, words that, that point to authority. Uh, intimidation. Control. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So here we have this snapshot. I mean, the the whole chapter, and and even throughout chapter 26, you, you kind of get these same threads weaving throughout the whole thing. But you've got the chief priests um, among the, the people of Jerusalem, this authority structure. You've got the chief priests mentioned numerous times. You've got principal men. And we don't really know exactly what that means except these are, these are men of gravity. These are men who have authority. You see corruption. I mean, you see these, these guys are not just kind of um, offended and, and there's a crime of passion here where they're kind of, you know, uh, they just want to get back at Paul and they're being uh, emotional or, or rash. They have uh, concocted charges. They've woven together a case. And they have this plan that, that they want um, Festus to bring Paul from the auxiliary town up to Jerusalem so that they can be waiting for him in a specific place to ambush him and murder him. So you, you get this sense of this backdrop, like we saw in Matthew, uh, once again this this backdrop of, of authority of something that you uh, not that you can't untangle. What are you going to do if these Jewish leaders and principal men are after you to murder you? But it's not just the Jewish authorities; it's the Roman authorities that are kind of in cahoots with them. This governor—it's it's, it's just kind of an offhanded thing. When two years had elapsed and. Chapter 24 and 27. I mean, he's just languishing in prison for two years while they try to decide what to do with him. It's kind of a, a, uh, that's that, another kind of reference like that is made later where, where it says that, that uh, in verse 6, he stayed among them not more than 8 or 10 days, right? So these, these fat cats, these, these folks that are in authority and, and are controlling the situation they're just hanging out together, you know, having good food and drinking wine and talking and, and, and uh, the new ruler is familiarizing himself with the province and whatever. But Paul is in prison. And we don't really know how long, just eight or ten days. It doesn't m- make a big difference if you're on vacation, if it's eight or ten days, right? Like, so, like some of the folks in the story. But if you're the person who's in prison, it doesn't really matter if we go uh, an hour and a half or an hour and 40 minutes, but it matters to the people in the children's ministry, right? (laughs) So it matters to Paul that in this story, he's this person who's in prison for some time. Two years, some more days. And now we, we also see King Herod Agrippa introduced to us as part of the backdrop. And and if you're familiar with the, the New Testament or, uh, or other, yeah, if you're familiar with the New Testament, then that, that name, Herod, kind of starts to ring a bell, right? Because this isn't the first time that we've met a Herod. This is the fourth time. And the first Herod, Herod the Great, he tried to kill Jesus in his infancy. He wanted to snuff out this Jesus character before he even had time to take root and, and start to exert his authority on this earth. Because Herod the Great was threatened by that, after he met the Magi, he tried to have him killed, and then the next Herod we meet had John the Baptist beheaded, and then the next Herod we meet killed James, the son of Zebedee, by the sword, and now we 've got this fourth Herod who 's going to hear paul 's case so it 's ominous, right there 's this, this dense cloak of authority that 's draped over the scene here and And Paul, we we wonder, how are you going to get out of this? John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, says, Jerusalem and Rome were the centers of two enormously strong power blocks. The faith of Jerusalem went back two millennia to Abraham. The rule of Rome extended some three million square miles around the Mediterranean Sea. The combined might of Jerusalem and Rome was overwhelming. If a solitary dissident like Paul... Were to set himself against them, the outcome would be inevitable. His chances of survival would resemble those of a butterfly before a steamroller. He would be crushed, utterly obliterated from the face of the earth. So that's the scene that Luke paints for us. That's the authority that is bent against the Apostle Paul. the authority, the intimidation and corruption. So what hope, what perspective might Paul have and what perspective might Paul have that would map on to our own experiences of corruption and despair in the face of authority at any time, in any circumstance? Well, one truth governs Paul and and we see that come come out in several different ways in chapter 26. One truth governs him. One truth that gives Paul complete peace. Even while these corrupt authorities steal away his life. Steal away, arguably, the best years of his life. Arguably, the most fruitful years of his life. He's languishing in prison. He's in chains. In this text, if you heard toward the end, He's in chains, like a criminal. So where does he get this peace? It's interesting. The one thing that gives Paul peace is the one thing where if he renounced it, he'd be fine. They'd let him go. If you just back off of this one thing, Paul, just back off of it. You can believe it if you want. You can have your own private faith if you want. That's fine. That's not a threat to anyone. But if you want to go around... As if this one thing is true and talk about it as if it's true and, and plant churches as if it's true, well, then we've got a problem and we're going to ambush and kill you. So what is this one thing? The one thing, you can see it here in chapter 25, verses 18 and 19. As Festus is relating Paul's case to King Agrippa, When King Agrippa arrives, when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in this in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. That's the crux of it. Is Jesus dead or is Jesus alive? That Jesus who we saw in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. Is that Jesus dead? Did he come here and do his thing and work some miracles, but then he died? Or is that Jesus, that Jesus, is he still alive? That changes everything. That changes everything for Paul. Because he believes that that Jesus, the one who spoke and the storm was calmed, the one who spoke and a legion of demons left two men and went into a herd of swine, That Jesus, if he's alive, that means that he is graciously, redemptively governing this circumstance as well. That means that these authorities, just like leprosy or a sick mother on a couch, just like those authorities can be calmed by Jesus and are under his reign, so is this circumstance that I'm in right now. If he's alive. And Paul was convinced that Jesus is alive. So, Paul lays out his testimony in a few different sections if you, if you look at it. Uh, first, uh, if you're there in, in Acts chapter 26, the first section of Paul's defense is it centers on uh, Paul basically saying, I was the ultimate insider. I mean, the authority that, that we've just seen described in In chapter 25 Paul says I was not just part of that authority structure but I was zealously I was pouring myself out to advance that authority scripture structure where I stand right now Agrippa basically he's saying I mean I put so many people in the same exact situation that's who I was that's how I that's what I was about I was on my way to a foreign city to persecute Christians, to have them imprisoned and, and hopefully even tried and, and, and executed for blasphemy. So that's the first section of Paul's testimony. Is that he was part of it. And that he was on, his road, on the road to Damascus when the second part of his testimony unfolds. And that is that, that this... Jesus, who Paul thought was dead, or Saul I should say, this Jesus is actually alive. And Jesus, this authority of the whole world, broke into Paul's world and introduced himself in dramatic fashion and and commissioned Saul to go and do different work. It's interesting in, in reading this story, and it, it occurs several times in Acts, this retelling of Paul's conversion. It's really important to Luke. But isn't it interesting? It's always struck me that when, when this light that's brighter than the sun blasts these guys to the ground, Saul doesn't have any idea who he's dealing with. He doesn't. He asks. But what does he say? Who are you, Lord? Lord? I don't know who you are, but you are the authority of everything. You're not a dusty tome of of doctrine that I've been studying or, or writing. You're not just my traditions that I'm trying to guard or my ethnicity that I'm trying to guard. You, whoever you are, whatever you are, are the Lord. So Jesus breaks in on Paul's whole paradigm. It's also interesting and important to note that as Jesus breaks into Paul's paradigm, we get to see what Jesus' authority is like. What compels Paul? What is Jesus doing in the world that's different than what Paul was doing up to this point? What is Jesus calling us to do and to be in the world, that's different than what we were doing to that point. I mean, if this Jesus who we saw in Matthew chapter 8, he's here in the midst of his creation as Yahweh, then in person in the flesh, now by his Holy Spirit, omnipresent, working his redemptive will throughout every pocket of the universe and every pocket of our houses, our homes, our families, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, everything, then what what, what does that mean for us? And we get to see that as we hear Jesus uh, through this testimony of Paul. Look at verse 16. Listen to how Jesus describes the mission to Paul. "...but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose." to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Why? Why is Jesus sending him to all these people? Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus is commissioning Paul to take this gracious reclamation work. He's sending him into the whole world to do this and to be part of it as an apostle to speak He says to this whole assembly, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, King Agrippa, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. These, the implications for Paul on meeting the, res, the resurrected Christ, meeting this Jesus who is alive, the implications for him were that he was going to go and speak he was going to go and share. He was, the love of Christ compelled him to go and, and call everyone everywhere back to Christ as an apostle. But the Great Commission in the Gospels doesn't just go to the... or in the, in the Gospels doesn't just go to the apostles. It doesn't just come to some, someone like Paul. It comes to all of us. I mean, Jesus... Insofar as he is alive and has poured his spirit out on the earth, poured his spirit out on everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus and animates us to do the good works that he's prepared us to do, insofar as that's all true, he is he's pushing his light and his love and his call back to the table. His call back to fellowship with him. He's pushing that through every pocket of the world, and he's using every single gifted member of his church to do it in various ways. It's clear in passages like Ephesians chapter 4, where yes, some are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, but they're there to equip the whole church for works of service, that the entire, every single member of the church would be equipped to do the things that, that, that Christ has prepared each member to do. So here we get, I believe, a beautiful and compelling window into the the nucleus of Paul's shalom. Why, in the midst of those kinds of circumstances, could he be so confident, happy, he calls himself blessed in this passage. It's only used 50 times. And, and it's only translated fortunate one time of all those 50 in English. And it's right here. But that's usually this word that's blessed. Like when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Or blessed are, those, blessed are you when you're persecuted. It's this, to, to use a churchy word, it's this eschatological uh, word it's it's a word that that speaks into a current circumstance but it it locates someone in this broader eternal scope right so even though you're being persecuted now you're blessed I've got you in my hand and no one's going to take you out I've seated you with me and I'm bringing you home one breath at a time don't worry it's that kind of a sense and Paul in the midst of this trial says I'm blessed to be before you today, King Agrippa. You have no idea. He's got this ace up his sleeve of confidence and joy. And we can have that as well as we look out over the terrain of our authority structures, as we we evaluate and and discern what authority structures are, are the backdrop of our lives. We know that ultimately above them all is this Jesus, who was dead but who's alive and he's redeeming everything and he's using us to do it i want to close with one very quick observation and it's in the passage that it closes this text it's verses 30 to 32 it's just interesting so listen, so, so you, you kind of got the scene. There's this big mob of people, right? This big gathering, and Paul is being asked questions, and he's answering these questions in front of everybody. But then look what happens here. There's like this sidebar that happens. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. So this is like the who's who, all the pomp, um, all these people who are important. They all kind of rise up together, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, "This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment." And Agrippa said to Festus, "This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar." Now, the interesting thing about this and I wouldn't put a lot of weight on this, but I would put some weight on this is that this is a quiet, private this is a private conversation. These people withdrew. So, if Luke, in writing this pass, in writing this this book, we know from from elsewhere that he goes around researching it, right? He's asking people what happened. He probably talked to Mary about the the the, the um, shepherds that came, and you know he's he's going and he's interviewing people about these events, and then he's chronicling them. So, how does he know about this conversation? Except as we've seen so many times in the book of Acts, like in one where it says many of the Pharisees became obedient to the Word. That Paul, in this wonderful proclamation, where he's lifting everybody's gaze to see Jesus Christ, the ultimate authority, and he says, I would that all of you would be as I am except for my chains. Including you, King Agrippa. And you, Bernice. Right? Paul, in allowing his confidence and his works to be located in in the risen Christ, He spoke to these people and apparently one or some of them were converted. Such that when it came for Luke to write this book, someone's ready to tell us the details of who spoke to whom. I want to leave us with that because it's beautiful. And it's, it's pregnant with opportunity. It's pregnant with... Uh, with the weight of each of our lives. Who knows? By being a faithful student who's not afraid to speak about Jesus as if He's actually alive. Who knows what the impact of that will be? And if you'll ever know the impact of it. But Jesus has created each of us in Himself to do the good works that He's prepared in advance for us to do. And those works... They are the the way that Jesus directly is about redeeming and reconciling and restoring His creation. Each one of us is part of that, just as Paul was here. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.